0: Thanks for being here. If you have a copy of God's Word, turn in it to the book of Haggai towards the end of your Old Testament. The book of Haggai. We're going to be this morning in Haggai chapter 2. Haggai chapter 2. Have you ever been sorely disappointed Have you ever looked forward to something? Has God ever called you to do something that you got in the middle of and then looked around and you were disappointed? That's exactly what happens here in Haggai chapter 2. They're doing exactly what God tells them to do, and yet they're disappointed. Can you identify with that something in your life? I remember looking forward to certain points in my future thinking life's going to be so much easier when... When I'm out of high school, when I'm out of college, when I have a job, when I'm married, when I have kids, it's always like the next thing. And then you get to that thing and it's great and wonderful, but you look around and you realize it didn't solve every problem in your heart. And there's a sense of disappointment that kind of washes over you. What do we do with that disappointment? What did they do here in Haggai chapter 2? Let's read the scriptures, and then we're going to pray and ask God to speak to our hearts. Haggai chapter 2, starting in verse 1. We're going to be in the first nine verses. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? We're going to read a little bit and talk a little bit, so let's pray. Father, would you speak to our hearts this morning as we open this small book, 2,500 years old, but we believe it has something to say to us. We love you. We love to hear your words. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Disappointment. That's the first point this morning, our disappointment. The people of God in Haggai chapter 2 are doing exactly what God asked them to do. You remember chapter 1? He's telling them, get to work. And here we pick up in the seventh month on the 21st day of the month. So we're about a month and a half in. And they've started. They're doing the work. But what happens? In verse 3, God asks them a question. Who's left among you who saw this house in its former glory? What he's saying is, look, there are still some people among this remnant that's come back that you remember what it was like before you got exiled out of the land. You remember what the old temple that Solomon built, you remember what it looked like. Now, if you go back and you read the book, First Kings, you'll remember that Solomon was incredibly wealthy and he used that wealth and influence to build a majestic temple, so then now you can imagine as they're building a new temple without that wealth, without the kingdom influence and authority behind it, and it's not near as magnificent as the first one was. In fact, Ezra chapter 3 tells us that when they had laid the foundation, remember they laid the foundation and they stopped for us two decades. But when they laid the foundation, this is Ezra 3, 10 to 13. It's, it's, it's a beautiful little passage because what it says is that Uh, Many people were rejoicing, and many people were weeping so loudly, and here's the quote, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. There was a generation of people that were so excited a new foundation had been laid for this temple that they were rejoicing and shouting, and then there was a generation of people that remember the old temple, and they were weeping so loudly that the, the sounds of the weeping and the sounds of the rejoicing were getting mixed together, and you couldn't tell which one was which. Now, these people are disappointed, and God asks them a question. Again, don't you love the way God interacts with his people? Who's left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? He's saying, isn't this new temple? Isn't it? I mean, it's nothing. If you remember the old one, this new one is nothing. So here you have people, and you go, God, that's not very motivating to continue to ask these people to serve and to rebuild this temple. But I think God's being honest about their disappointment. As they're rebuilding the temple on top of that disappointing foundation in Ezra 3, all these familiar feelings are coming back, and the temple is like nothing. But their ultimate disappointment was this question, where is God's glory? Where's God's glory? Where, where do we look to find God, to find something divine, to find something worth living for? You know, we're finally back in our land, and we're building this temple, and it is such a disappointment. You know, I think in our walk with God, we find our story looking very similar to this. We get disappointed. We feel let down. Or at times, our lives don't meet the expectations we had of them, especially our spiritual life, right? Maybe you became a believer and you had an emotional high thinking that it was only going to be up and to the right for you. And that's not what your life with God looked like. Or maybe you've done something where you thought you were putting your faith in God, and what you thought that meant is that all your feelings would change, and it didn't. All your emotional problems weren't solved, and you were disappointed. Have you ever asked God, where's your glory in this mess that I call my life? Or how about this one? Do you feel too underwhelming? Do you feel too underwhelming for God's glory to actually be here in your life? Man, there's, there's nothing spectacular here. When I look around and my house is a little messier than I'd like. My stuff's a little older than I like. Stuff's a little more run down. I'm a little more tired. My job's not quite paying me what I thought. I mean, just everything you go, is this it, God? Is it, it, did you call me to a life of underwhelming normalcy, mediocrity? I mean, I grew up in spiritual life hearing things like never settle for mediocrity. Always achieve the biggest and the greatest. Hey, and this was spiritual church language. Go for great, Be a world changer. What, what happens when you're not? What happens when you don't change the world? What happens instead when God calls you to a small place? rather than the largest one? What happens when God takes a long time to do what you thought would take a short time and you experience disappointment? Did you know that these feelings of disappointment Jesus felt too? Did you know that? Did you know that when in Haggai 2 when it says they were expecting to see the form of something magnificent and it wasn't? Did you know God is setting us up to meet Jesus? Isaiah has a series of poems called the Servant Songs where he's writing about the coming servant of the Lord and how this coming servant would accomplish the full and final salvation of God. Listen to what he says in Isaiah 53, maybe the most well-known servant song. Who's believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now notice what verse 2 says in Isaiah 53. For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a young root out of dry ground, so he, the servants growing up, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, grief. And as one from whom men would hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. So in Haggai 2, when they're experiencing disappointment and they're saying, shouldn't this look bigger and better and more magnificent and spectacular? And God says, that's not the way I build my kingdom. He says, my own servant's not going to come like that. We know the New Testament version of Isaiah 53 in these verses will probably be Philippians chapter 2. He emptied himself of his glory. He humbled himself. He came in the form of a, a servant That's our Christ. That's Jesus. So as we experience disappointment in our life, we can be sure that this is the way of Jesus. That we don't judge the success or failure of our life by what the form on the outside looks like. Because we know God is at work in a deeper way. And in their disappointment here in Haggai 2, he's setting us up to say, if you keep looking at the outward appearance, you're going to miss Jesus. You're going to miss Jesus. So as God meets us in our disappointment, he's actually pointing us to Jesus. But point two of this text is not just our disappointment, but it's our identity. How does God respond to their disappointment? Keep reading with me in verse four, Haggai chapter two. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work for I am with you declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. So how does God respond to their disappointment? He brings them back to their identity shaping moment. The Exodus. The Exodus is the pattern, the type of how God saves his people for the rest of scripture. It is the salvation moment that is repeated time and time again. And in the Old Testament, the prophets and everybody else keep pointing back to the exodus saying, don't you remember how God saved you out of slavery that you would belong to him? And even here, as they're coming out of exile, they're building, they're disappointed. God says, don't you remember who you are? But there's actually another way God's pointing them to the exodus. And it has to do with verse one, the date that we read quickly by and go, okay, neat. The seventh month, the 21st day of the month, they're celebrating the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, which was kind of an end of harvest fall time, probably October, honestly, celebration, where they would celebrate the final harvest. But the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, they would go out and they would live in tents. They would build these like leafy shelters and live in, they would go camping for a week. And it was to remember the way they lived in the wilderness and how God provided for them as he saved them out of Egypt and was bringing them to God's place so they could be God's people under God's rule and celebrate life with him. They were to remember God's provision in the exodus during this feast of tabernacles. Yet they're obviously not remembering it because they're not even remembering their own identity and God has to go back and point them to the exodus and say, don't you remember that covenant that I made with you? I'm with you, which was a miraculous statement because they're building the temple so that God can be with them. But God's like, it's the points, not the building. So in the middle of their disappointment, God is reminding them of their identity. And he gives them commands to be sure. He says, work and fear not. He says, be strong. But these commands are only properly situated if you first are remembering your identity. God never calls us to work for an identity. He always calls us to work from an identity. Indicatives and imperatives. Indicative, what is true? This is true about you. This is your identity imperative. Therefore, do this. If you get those backwards, you will be the most frustrated Christian ever. But God, in the middle of their disappointment, is reminding them of their identity. He reminds them of who they are. And I think this is a fitting word for us. Do you remember your identity? In the middle of your spiritual disappointment, life disappointment, underwhelming circumstances, God wants to do the same thing with you. He wants to call you to remember your identity. Identity. See, don't let the circumstances of your life make you forget who you are and whose you are. Because God's often showing us that hard times, when he sends us through hard times, he's often showing us that those hard times don't change who we are. This is called preaching the gospel to yourself. We need to be gospeled daily. Daily. You need to be gospeled. You need to remember the truth about who you are in the gospel, in the good news of Jesus. For instance, you belong in God's family because he's adopted you. Your sin is forgiven and paid for. Stop trying to pay for something that's already been paid for. Your shame is covered. Your guilt is removed. Romans 8.1, there's therefore now no condemnation. You can stop hiding, stop covering, stop trying to pay for what's already been paid for. You're loved, you're loved. You're accepted, your wounds are being healed and redeemed. Your suffering does not define you. Being abused, neglected, or abandoned doesn't define you. It doesn't make you unlovely. And it doesn't disqualify you, it actually puts you in the exact category of folks that God came to love and to pick up and to cherish and to call his own. That's who you are. You'll never again be alone. Paul Tripp says that being alone is a redemptive impossibility. Do you remember your identity this morning? As someone who's in Christ? in the middle of your disappointment, when you look around, your marriage is not what you thought it would be. Your kids are not what you thought they would be. Your job is not what you thought it would be. Your home is not what you thought it would be. Your church family is not what you thought it would be. People are harder to love than you expected. Being a disciple is harder than you thought. Being generous with your money doesn't fulfill you the way you thought it would emotionally. In the middle of your disappointment god wants to remind you that you are his and your feelings don't change that our culture would have you believe the opposite our culture would actually put you under a greater burden under the guise of freedom our culture wants you to believe that you are free to define who you are and you can be anything you want when i was a kid that meant you could be any career you want now it means literally anything you could be anything you want. But I'll have you know this morning that with that great freedom, the culture wants you to think is freedom, is actually a crushing burden for you to define yourself. And they'll tell you, define yourself. Who are you? Who are you? What is your sexuality? What is your gender? What is your occupation? What is your political party? Are you social justice enough? Are you a bigot? are you racist? Are you loving? Are you a good neighbor, a bad neighbor? And they're going to constantly tell you to define and then prove your identity over and over and over again. And here's the truth. You will be crushed under the weight of the burden of defining yourself. You were not meant to do that. But apart from God, you will always, you're a meaning maker. That's what it means to be in the image of God. You're always going to be trying to make meaning out of your life and find an identity. But the good news of the gospel is you can stop trying. Receive the identity that God freely gives to you. You don't have to wonder if you picked the right identity this morning. Because your feelings are gonna tell you one thing and tomorrow they're gonna tell you something different and the next Sunday they're gonna tell you something different again and you're constantly gonna be saying, wait a minute, which identity do I pick based on which feeling I have today? And God says, what if I give you an identity that will transcend all of that, that will be true no matter how you feel? And he gives you an identity so that when your life feels disappointing, you don't have to try to change your circumstances. You can go back and remember who you are, just like these people. God says, don't you remember the exodus and how I saved you? And God looks at you and says, don't you remember how I saved you? God wants them to remember their identity. But the last point is our hope. If we talk about our disappointment, our identity, and then last we'll talk about our hope. So the question remained for these people. See, there's a way of reading the Old Testament where you don't actually deal with the history that's going on. You just kind of pull out like some moral platitudes. So that kind of sermon would be like if we said amen right now. We just kind of took a story and then made some parallels and we just, but there's something actually happening historically in Haggai and we've got to deal with that. The, The question remained for these people, where's God's glory? That's great. That God, you want to deal with me in my disappointment? That's great that you remind me of my identity. This temple is still small, and it's hard for us to sense your presence. So God doesn't leave them with that question unanswered. He keeps reading. I mean, he keeps saying, let's read in verse 6. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. Remember that. It's going to be at the end of chapter 2 as well. He says, I'm going to shake it all and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in and will fill. I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So really practically what's happening is God's saying, look, I got this. You're worried about not having enough treasure, enough influence, enough size. I'm going to provide all the treasures you need because I'm sovereign over everything. So I'll shake everything and I'll make the treasure move where it needs to move. At the, God never lacks funds is what one of the commentators says that I read. The problem is not that God is too cheap or too poor. God says, I'm going to provide for it. And look, we're going to make our way to Jesus from this passage. But first, it's important that you know he actually did. Go read the book of Ezra. And what happens is you get some people who are fighting against Ezra, who's leading a rebuilding project, and some of the early people who came back out of exile. Then you have some people who are kind of living in the land but not of God's people and they're fighting against them and they're saying, you don't have any right to do this. I said, well, actually go write the king. He said we could come, so they write the king. And actually it backfired on the people wanting to push back against the building project because they said, you don't have any right to do it. Fine, we will write the king. So they write the king and the king goes, hey, go look in the archives. Well, did King uh, Cyrus really say they could do this? And they came back to King Darius and said, actually, yeah, he did say you could do this. And he actually also said to repay them all the stuff we took and to pay out of our treasury whatever it took to rebuild the temple. Uh-oh. Like we, we shouldn't have brought this up. You know, you can rebuild it in your poverty. But God fulfills in Ezra 6, verses 4 and 5, listen to what he says. A non-Jewish, King of the nations says, let the cost be paid from the royal treasury and let also the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that's in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, be restored and brought back to the temple that's in Jerusalem, each to its place. You shall put them in the house of God. So then in Ezra 6, 5 to 12, King Darius, who if you remember, that's the one who's reigning right now as uh, Haggai 1, 1, he gives a decree to meet their every financial need every financial need so they can finish this building project. Look, God, here's what he's saying. God's saying, I got this. You're worried about this building, but I'm doing so much more than this building. I'm going to rebuild this building so that the nations know I haven't abandoned my people. But it's really not all about a building. God says, I've got this, but this is really nothing. Because you see what he says there in verse 9? Look, I'll control the treasures. We'll get this house rebuilt but the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former. The, the glory that's to come of this temple is going to be so much better than the glory that you remember in the past. The glory that's to come is better than the glory of the past. And God says, look, we're, the temple is going to get rebuilt. But that's not the point. The point is that we're looking ahead to God bringing greater glory. The point is God's giving them hope for the future. When we think about the rebuilding of the temple, I've got to stop for a second and admit to you, I struggled all week with what to do with this part of the passage. I felt like I understood, okay, I had the Ezra context. I had the understanding of God's giving you hope. Okay, I could just jump to the latter glory, and we could just jump to the glory of Jesus. But I felt in my heart, I didn't have the connection. And I happened to be sitting yesterday, reading, praying, and reading actually a separate book than for this message. And the author, she said something that struck a chord in me that brought me to John chapter 2. And I thought, God, how can I read a book like Haggai about rebuilding the temple and not pay attention to John chapter 2 and verse 18? So the Jews said to Jesus, What sign do you? show us for doing these things. And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. He's standing here. Destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you'll raise it up in three days. Then you get a little perspective, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus has spoken. See, Haggai 2 is about the struggle to rebuild the temple, but their ultimate hope was not in a rebuilt building, but in a resurrected Savior. Did you hear that? their hope was not in a rebuilt building but in a resurrected savior see when jesus comes on the scene he is the walking presence of god he's god in the flesh he's the temple with legs he is the temple And as in Haggai 2, they're sitting here mourning that the temple's been destroyed, wondering how it's going to be rebuilt. That's a building. Get the wood, get the stones, and build it back. We have a category for that. But when you make the temple of God a person and they die, now that's a rebuilding project we don't know how to undertake. I could rebuild a building even if it takes 46 years. We've sped that up, right? Thousands of years later, a couple of weeks or months, depending on how big the building is. We can do this thing. But all of a sudden, if the temple is a person and that person gets destroyed, how in the world does that temple get rebuilt? That's precisely the question Jesus wants us to ask. And Jesus, by dying, by the temple of his body being destroyed, is identifying with exactly what's happening here in Haggai 2. See, to rebuild a temple because God sovereignly moves money from King Darius, King Cyrus, to these rebuilding remnant here in Jerusalem, that's glorious. That's magnificent. That is only attributed to God's sovereignty. But to rebuild a temple because the temple is a person, Jesus, who is the presence of God, and he dies and is put in a tomb with a stone rolled in front of it, Surely we can mourn more than they can in Haggai too, right? I mean, couldn't God come to the disciples in between those three days and say, who's left among you who saw this Savior in his former glory? And their minds would be brought back to stories of him feeding thousands of people or healing the sick, raising Lazarus from the dead he's going to say, Who, don't you remember the glory of Jesus on earth? I'm going to say, do we ever? We remember the glory, the teachings, the truth. We remember the supernatural works that he did. And he's going to say, what, what if God asked the disciples, how do you see him now? I'm saying, Gone. We had hoped that he would be the savior of Israel. Isn't that what they say in Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus? We had hoped. And what if God asked them these questions? How do you see it now? Is he not as nothing in your eyes? I mean, he is not just as good as dead. He is dead. But God says, I promise you, That the latter glory of this Savior is going to be better than the former glory. I promise you, he's going to be raised more glorious than he was before he died. And sure enough, our resurrected King came out of the grave, walked through the other side of death to give us a hope so much better than a rebuilt building. He gives us a hope that our greatest enemy, death, is defeated. He gives us hope that not just that life will get better or our circumstances are going to change. Our hope is that Jesus is alive. Our hope is that the best things in this life, the things you long for most, the things you look forward to more than anything else. We just decorated our house for Christmas. Confession. If you don't want a pastor who decorates for Christmas in November, you can speak here in 10 minutes and... Now, but if you come to my house, we're decorated for Christmas. Because I'm excited. I love Christmas. We've got our Christmas candles and our tree and our garland. We've got lights up. We're going to put ornaments on the tree today. We love it. I can't wait for Christmas. But the good things that we long for in this life, the things we can't wait for, that get our heart racing, the things like a little kid on Christmas Eve can't sleep because they're excited about opening the presents, those things pale in comparison to what will be ours when God makes all things new. That's the kind of hope we had because Jesus is resurrected. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if he's not resurrected, we're of all people most to be pitied because our hope is in this life only. But because he's resurrected, our hope is not in this life only. We don't have to hope in changed circumstances. We can hope in eternity. And that hope also means that the worst things in this life will not be forever, but will instead be redeemed and made new the worst things that you are going through right now. Your pain, your suffering, that you didn't cause. Sometimes we only have a category in church for like sin that you're responsible for and that's very real, that separates us from God but there are also things in your life that hurt. That's not the end of your story if Jesus is your hope. Jesus is gonna redeem all things and make all things new. Our hope is that we can have real life, joy, peace, and relationships right now in the midst of a difficult and even disappointing life. And our hope is that God will bring greater glory. So I hope you see here in Haggai too that it's leading us to Jesus. I'm, I try to tell you sometimes, like, I want to get to Jesus no matter where we're at in scriptures. We were taking CC to dance the other day and just kind of walking around with Anila, and it's at First Baptist Woodstock, and we bumped into somebody that I was his counselor at camp and on mission trips, and now he's an intern, so he's doing some speaking at FCA's, and oh, what are you doing? Oh, I'm, I'm speaking at this. FCA's, oh, what are you speaking on? I think it was somewhere in Amos, and oh, God uses bad things to turns to him, and I had to, hold, I, I'm not as close to him right now, but I wanted so bad to go like, so how are you getting to Jesus? Because if you don't, it it's just not worth it. Get to get to Jesus. Wrestle with that. Haggai 2 gets us to Jesus because the temple that's being rebuilt in Haggai 2 is as nothing compared to the temple of Jesus body being resurrected from the grave. Is that your hope today? Is your hope that Jesus really did live? Really did die? Really was resurrected? let's pray. Father, we love you. We're thankful for your word. That is one big unified story leading to Jesus. And that's because you know our greatest need is Jesus. Not our greatest need was Jesus, and then we move past it, and then we start learning how to live. No, no. We learn how to live only as we learn how to be dependent on you, Christ. Because even after we come to know you, Jesus, and we're saved, our life is still a wreck. We still forget to trust you. We still don't call on you. We still try to live independent of you on our own because that's the way we were brought up. That's the way we learned to do life. And so what we need every day is not more commands to try to follow, not more answers to our questions. We need a greater trust and submission to you. What we need most is not different circumstances. It's a clearer view of our Savior so that our hearts would fall more deeply in love. And God, I pray that if there's anyone in this room this morning that's never put their faith in Christ in a way that they said, I need to be saved. I pray that they'd do it this morning, God. I pray that they'd move, transfer their trust from themselves to you that they'd recognize that they can't give themselves an identity that'll last. They can't have a hope beyond this life unless it comes from you. Work in our hearts to make us trust you more today. And God, I pray that you'd move on people's hearts to trust you for the very first time. So, the band's gonna come back up and we're getting ready to sing one more song. As we sing, this is a song of invitation and response where you're invited to respond to the way God is speaking to your heart. I pray that we'd all respond in faith and trust that Jesus is better. But I hope you take from Haggai, too, that you don't have to lie about the disappointments in your life. You can be honest, and that is exactly where God meets you. He meets you right there in the disappointment of these first few verses. And then he leads you by the hand to remember your identity and to look at Jesus, our resurrected King. So let's respond.